Ben, hello. Hello and happy Thursday to you. It is the NCA prep stream. And I don't know if you know what that is, but NCA is a big and important event for people who are communication scholars, communication professionals of all kinds. And uh, that kicks off about, uh, that'll be a week from today. So have been thinking about NCA and preparing for uh, NCA. Uh, and uh, I haven't really been the best uh, NCA citizen this time around. I was kind of um, putting some stuff together at the last minute. And uh, last minute for me being yesterday. So I'm not too happy about that. I was kind of, um, I don't know what it means. I think it might mean, uh, I think it might mean that uh, NCA is losing its um, excitement for me or losing its interest for me. I hope not. Uh, NCA is, a, is the National Communication Association Conference. And it occurs every year in a major, 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 major city. Uh, NCA is so big that there's only a few cities that can host it. And um, let me bring up their website here so that you can see what they're all about. Um, the, the National Communication Association, I've been a member for my whole professional life. Uh, I think ever since I was a grad student, I maybe joined. And um, the, uh, the function of NCA is to advocate for communication issues, to uh, improve people's communication through research and scholarship, things like that. And uh, I always go and present some papers and go and see my friends and stuff. And uh, it's pretty good. But um, one of the things about NCA that I think is kind of annoying uh, to me is that sometimes they're kind of oversimplistic about things. And also the conference, the convention is also kind of strange where you have um, a bunch of people kind of following quote unquote famous people around, which I think is a little weird. But it'll be in New Orleans. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, a week from today. Can you believe that? I can't believe that it's just in a week. And uh, in the bin, always, we always have done, for the last few years, we've always done a live uh, podcast uh, that we record and then uh, send out later. And that uh, podcast, yeah, let me do like this. Yeah, this might be better. No, I think I like it like this or maybe like this. I don't know. I don't know which one is better. I think this is probably the best way to put the camera up. But um, yeah, uh, in the past, we've done that from the bar. We might do that again. That would be on Friday, which I think would be the 18th. So I will probably put something on YouTube about that. Yeah, maybe the 18th on Friday. We'll do one in the evening. And then we'll have time to go around to the, um, to the various... Uh, Parties that the universities hold, they hold receptions, and some of those receptions can be pretty good. 
Uh, so we'll probably do it on the 18th, I would think, and it's going to be at the Marriott. Um, yeah, the New Orleans Marriott. Probably in the reservation bar there. Gosh, $200 at night. That's actually pretty decent for the way NCA usually goes. But yeah, it'll be at the New Orleans Marriott on November 18th. Swing by. Could be on In the Bend. It'll, it won't be technically live like this unless I can figure out how to do it. It would be pretty cool if I could figure out how to stream from the bar at the hotel. But with my experience with hotel Wi-Fi and such, I just don't think that there's going to be any chance that I'll be able to uh, to do a live stream like this there. But that would be pretty cool if I could. So what did you all think of last Monday's kind of stream that fits called the Potpourri stream? Seems like a lot of people watched it after the fact. But we might do something like that. Normally I have audio recording, so I have a couple of devices that I'll bring that I used to do audio-only podcasts, so this is my handy-dandy Tascam uh, recorder here. Uh, this thing is amazing. It sounds like studio quality. Really great. It was only like maybe 80 bucks. I think that voice recorder is fantastic if you're doing audio content stuff. Then I have this thing. It's called a Mic Me that I bought off of Kickstarter. Let me show it to you. I hardly ever use this one, but this one is good because it also doubles as a microphone for your laptop. So I might try to do this with the live stream. I would plug that in and see how that goes with the laptop. But again, you know, relying on hotel Wi-Fi is not good. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty excited. Pretty excited about going to New Orleans and pretty excited about seeing my friends. But as far as a convention goes, I don't know. I feel a little bit, um, a little bit strange about it. Uh, I think, am I, am I outgrowing NCA? Is NCA part of my past now? Is that something that, um, I don't know, it's going to be, um, something I don't do so much anymore? I don't know. So I'm pretty sour on academic publishing, as you know. But here's what I'm doing at the convention, if you're curious. We already have, this is the, what they call the, um, the submission, the convention managing thing. And you can uh, create your own schedule and kind of look at each day and decide which panels you're going to go to. And then it has on there which ones that you're doing already. So I'm presenting my paper on Zelensky uh, Thursday morning at 11. So that'll be a nice early start. Hopefully people will come and listen to me. Uh, and then Friday at 8 a.m., we're doing our new rhetoric panel, which is uh, horrible to do something at 8 o'clock in the morning, but I'll have to get there very early, I guess. I'm thinking about filming these if the people will let me film them. If people agree to filming them, then I'll film it. But 8 in the morning on Friday is really terrible. Hey, George. George, I was just talking about how called our Monday stream potpourri, and that might be the name that we we go with. Um, and then Saturday at 2 o'clock is my last. So what a weird schedule, man. I just now I'm wrapping my head around my schedule. I 
can't believe I have to be there Friday at eight in the morning. That's terrible. Hmm. And Thursday I'm doing this one. Well, that's okay. I'm flying in Wednesday, so should be fine. Not a bad schedule, I guess. Um, the other thing I'm going to try to do is maybe just maybe talk. I don't know if I need a handout for these. I wonder if I need a handout for uh for my for my stuff. Once again, writing about um Perlman and Ulbricht Siddica can't get away from it. You know, the real advantage of NCA is that everybody comes at the same time and you can chat with everybody. And that's the real advantage to it. Otherwise, I don't know if there's much of an advantage. But anyway, I got to plan my schedule and then download it. Honoring place. They always have a weird theme. They always have a strange theme to NCA. I don't really know why they do that. But, um, hey, we have other things to talk about, too. We have guests. And uh, a big, longtime friend of the show and uh, co-host, Dr. Kate Morrison. Yay! Hello! Hello! Welcome back to uh, In the Bin. It's nice to be here. It's wild to, to see the uh, video turn. Very exciting. I agree. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think the video turn is going to be good. I think it's going to help. I was kind of doing like an NCA warm-up show. You know, it's a week till NCA. One week I, from today. I don't know. Do you know how luxurious it is to not know? <laughs> well, I, yeah, that's what I was talking about is like, have you turned sour on NCA or is it just a matter of money or? I, I mean, I think that it is uh, a lot of things. Um, I think NCA was fun for me uh, early on to be able to see people that I hadn't seen in a long time. Um, I think it's so large that uh, as a scholarly endeavor, I don't know how well it works, right? There are uh, conferences that focus on individuals' issues or um, uh, concerns that I think are way more productive if that's what you want, right? Mm -hmm. To mm -hmm. academic knowledge production. Yeah. Um, and so NCA really becomes more of a kind of uh, communal ritual, I guess. And uh, between a, a lack of funding for my uh, university and the fact that this is just one of the worst times in the, the year to suddenly have to leave for a weekend, uh, it just doesn't speak to me as much anymore. Yeah, yeah, all that is right. Yeah, I kind of feel like, I don't know, I'm just torn about it because I always feel like NCA is something that I've done for such a long time. Um, that is kind of a ritual in a way. I always feel like, oh, that's the start of the holidays. But what an expensive start. I could do better just hanging out here in New York and do my Christmas shopping or something. But um, I mean, it is, it, it's wild, especially if you're, you're looking at something across the country where, I mean, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that I am $2,000 out of pocket. Yeah, and that's I true. Just, that's I think true. I could have a better time for $2,000. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah, I'm lucky to have, this one's a good one for me because I'm staying with my friends, so I don't have a hotel bill. I got a really, really cheap flight, like $400 flight. 
uh, I feel like pretty good about it. Maybe food will be the only expensive thing. And then I have an eight in the morning panel. So that'll be like, that'll be expensive on the soul, my soul debt for it. That'll be, that'll be expensive. So I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of starting to get a little bit tired of it or maybe thinking it's not really worth doing anymore. But uh, NCA is kind of like an isolated little, you make your own conference out of it because it's way too big and way too complex to really have anything good come out of it as a, as a huge holistic thing. So I don't know. I don't know. Just kind of torn about it. Plus I do feel like unconsciously I'm not very into it because I was like finishing up my presentation last night, you know, to send to the reviewer. So it's like, eh, you know, to send the respondent. So mm-hmm. normally I don't do that. Normally I'm like a month ahead and I'm all excited about it. I'm not terribly excited about it. I'm excited about going to New Orleans. I'm excited about seeing my friends. But for me, it's a it's a free trip because the university will cover like up to $1,000 or something. So it's not so bad. But will I learn anything? Well, that's really up to me. The, co- the conference won't provide that. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, what I wind up learning at NCA is sort of like more the tenor mood and interest of the field than anything Mm -hmm. else Mm -hmm. i think that that there is a value in that in like getting a sense of like what is the discipline and its understanding of itself which is almost always neurotic yeah (laughs) it is isn't it yeah it's true so true yeah and the discipline right that's another big weird word too like what is the discipline and there's so many people there that i would never interact with normally and there's so many more people there and you're just rhetoricians. And then there's also like the cult of personality part of it too, which is really weird, which I don't, I, I was calling it last week on the show, I was calling it the largest Stanford prison experiment, continuously running Stanford prison experiment, where you give people these, um, you just tell people, hey, these are your titles or whatever. And then people act as if it was reality. Yeah, I think that one of the other things that makes me kind of down on NCA is seeing as a professional organization um, how little it does for us professionally. Um, Even in my ancillary engagement with other academic uh, areas, professional organizations, um, you've just seen a a more professional organization. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Like they do very, very little. They do very little. And the things they do are like so oversimplistic. It's like, I mean, when NCA talks about like communication in the workplace, it should be more engaging and more interesting than something NPR would do. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I feel like what NCA does would be rejected by NPR editors is not in-depth enough, not good enough journalism, which I think is kind of sad. Or like a friend of mine said, um, which is an interesting litmus test, for NCA, if a member of the public came into one of these rooms or in this convention, could they articulate what was going on? And uh, probably not. They'd be like, what the hell is this? This isn't, because it doesn't look like anything other than a a very formalized ritual, people reading papers and stuff. So I'm not going to read any papers this year. I think I'm just going to talk. I've read before. I think I'm just going to talk and talk for five or six minutes or whatever, but I have the weirdest schedule in the world, so we'll see if I'm awake for it. Uh, But anyway... At least I'm ready to go. I just haven't packed yet and I haven't made a schedule, but I'm pretty much ready to go. So we'll see how it goes. But um, anyway, um, yeah, New Orleans. We're going to, I was talking about how we might try to do a live show down from there like we've done in the past, like a recording, but it would be fun to stream from the bar like this. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be crazy? I wonder if I could do it. 
I don't think the hotel Wi-Fi is good enough, so I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. Don't think it's going to happen. But um, anyway, we're here to talk about <clears throat> fallacies a little bit, I think, or whatever you want to talk about. But one of the mm -hmm. things that Kate and I have been talking about in my Discord is talking about unionization and union arguments. And I guess maybe we can start with you maybe talking about your involvement, how you got involved in faculty union stuff. And uh, here at St. John's, we have a weird, where I work, St. John's University, we have a weird union structure. We have like two unions mm -hmm. and they don't really get along. Uh, mm -hmm. They work together on some things, but they have big, big, big ideological differences, uh, i.e. Uh, in terms of things like diversity and what that is mm -hmm. and what that should look like. So an important debate to have, but uh, also maybe um, disingenuous maybe sometimes from one side. I, I, I don't know how much more I should say. I wonder who's watching this. But, uh, why don't you start talk about how you got involved and what your interest was in all that? Sure. Uh, so I got involved in two different ways, um, both of which are, I, I, yeah, both of which are pretty common. So the first was we had had uh, the department's regular 10-year external review. Uh, I had been in the meeting with other uh, full-time non-tenured faculty, and they had a lot of comments and concerns that the uh, external reviewer kept saying, well, this sounds like a union issue. This sounds like a union issue. And then somebody says, oh, I don't even think, I don't think we're represented. And everybody gets very confused. And I knew that they were. So this becomes a, a concern for me. So um, I quickly try and get a just sort of handshake from the union and uh, our full-time non-tenured faculty members uh, have start kind of conversations with them. Um, I then, uh, in fairly short order, I believe, uh, had the classic uh, bad exchange with a boss, uh, you know, Ooh. where uh, I didn't like what was being requested of me. And uh, I went to the union there. Um, it was not something grievable, but it was something that the union could um, fire shot across the bow about, like, just let them know that, uh, they're, they're on watch. Um, and so it, in quick succession, I had both experienced on the, uh, getting other people engaged side and then on the, uh, benefiting from myself side, uh, uh, the power of the union. And pretty soon after that, I was, um, nominated to the membership com committee which has the thankless job of going around and getting people either um, signed up for the first time or going back to holdouts and trying yet again to see if we can't get them to sign a union card. Um, from there, I became a member uh, at large of the executive committee uh, elected in, and then I became vice president. And so oh, now wow. I'm vice president of URI AAUP. Very cool, wow. What a journey. Yeah, I don't know how my union works at all. I pay them some amount of money every year, but regardless of whether I pay them or not, we have this collective bargaining agreement that I'm just subject to regardless as an employee. Right. Um, so it might be helpful for people who aren't union to understand how a collective bargaining agreement works because mm -hmm. um, there are- Yeah, I have are... no idea. I just, oh. I'm just happy to have it because I'm like, oh, okay. But I get yeah, funny but... emails from time to time 
where like a dean will invite you to something and then there'll be a little asterisk and then it'll be like according to section 53 subparagraph c your attendance is required mm. <laughs> of the uh, of the cba cba yeah so what we um what a collective bargaining agreement does is it sets a baseline contractual relationship between um, members of the bargaining unit which are um everyone right so long as you are a union shop that is recognized you speak for all people that fall under a certain designation so for us <coughs> that means uh, all full-time faculty members there is a uh -huh. yeah we're the same union. way yeah there's another union for part-time faculty there is another union for um uh for staff uh the university of rhode island ultimately has i think 13 bargaining units all together wow. um and it was not always the case that uh full-time non-tenured faculty members were represented by aaup at least at the University of Rhode Island, which is why so many of my colleagues were uh, surprised about their um, their their membership, mm -hmm. or at least their potential membership. So, all that said, your bar uh, your CBA uh, sets basically the baseline relationship between um, membership and uh, and management, right? Uh, in terms of um, the requirements of uh, everything from the chair to uh, review uh, procedures. And of course, the thing that everybody cares about the most, uh, your uh, pay, right? Mm -hmm. So it's uh, important to, to point out here because I think um, administrators, at least mine, uh, like to make this not clear that the uh, CBA sets a floor, right? This yeah. is the baseline lowest amount that you can be paid. Uh, there are a lot of ways to get paid on top, right? You can uh, get money for uh, extraordinary service, I believe it's called, um, ESIs anyway, mm. right? That go above. Oh yeah, extraordinary your, your service pay. initiative. That's a great phrase. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, you're teaching over, you may be summer yeah. contracted, stuff like mm. that. Um, and depending upon where you are, uh, you may also be able to bargain different things. In the state of Rhode Island, for example, we do not bargain healthcare. We are a part of state employees uh, that is chosen at the state employee level. Uh, so there are certain aspects that uh, given your, your state labor situation um, and mm -hmm. what they accept is either bargainable or not, uh, what is good or bad for you to put on the table to bargain, um, all depend on your situation. Uh, so yeah, your your CBA is supposed to lay out um, what your not only your responsibilities are, but also the limits of what your administrators can do. And then the union is there essentially to enforce that contract because without enforcement, um, a lot of that language is meaningless. And I think that in bad union situations, part of what you find are um, administrators that are really good at talking about or invoking when um, convenient the collective bargaining agreement and then a labor side that is not particularly um, informed enough, engaged enough 
to enforce it. Because we can only act as much as we have individual members who say, hey, I think my contractual rights were violated here. Right. And they have to do it within a, a certain period of time, right? I yeah. need to know about it within 10 business days, uh, uh, according yeah. to the state labor board, or else it's been too long. Mm, that's pretty short. We have um, we have a similar sort of setup where I work. Um, it's somewhat similar, but big differences to you. I kind of feel like we don't have as many ways to be uh, overcompensated over the baseline. Mm. There's just certain ranks. And it's not it's not great. But we used to have one. We used to have a way of getting extra pay, but then that was eliminated in the last round of ne negotiations and bargaining and stuff like that. But um, I'm curious about, since you spent so much time trying to get people to sign these union cards, I'm curious, let's talk about all these different public debates about whether unions are past their time mm. or whether we need unions anymore or are unions too too powerful or too, too uh, manipulative actually end up harming people more than the management would. So the tentative title of this episode is Fallacies of Unionization. But I wonder if we want to start with any of the big ones and talk about that, or what are some of the arguments you've heard from people that we might be able to call fallacious about why they don't want to join the union or why the union is past its time? Sure. Uh, I'm sure you have a fun collection. I do. Uh, I even have them separated. Like, do you want this one specific to academia first? Do you want the ones general to unionization first? Well, here's one that everybody's talking about, uh, which, of course, is the Amazon union struggles. And I know you were just at a national conference where I think the, the big leader of this movement spoke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're uh, They're sort of laying it out here argumentatively and saying, why is it that a union is necessary? Why is a union a good thing? And they're just kind of laying it out. I still wonder about, you know, people who only shop at Amazon might say, well, no, this is not a good a good thing for, for Amazon to do. Uh, but uh, look is, at Symbol. This is funny. <laughs> if we think about it from uh, the consumer's perspective, I think that there are uh, really good arguments for uh, unionization creating stable uh, well-informed and skilled workforces that are able to uh, actually do the job. One of the things that we notice at Amazon is an extraordinarily high rate of churn amongst uh, their employees, meaning that the average Amazon worker works there for about three months. Uh, it is so high that there are, in fact, concerns about them depleting workforces in regions uh, within pretty short periods of time. Anybody who would have worked there uh, has already worked there and either quit or was fired. Um, wow. So we know that that's like that's literally not a great way to run a business. And a good example of a place where we can see the difference is if you look at shipping. So uh, UPS, uh, all of their drivers are Teamsters. Uh, FedEx is not unionized. Um, during this spike of uh, demand on delivery services due to the pandemic, FedEx has been scrambling because they use this sort of lean, light, contractor-heavy model um, that's super unstable, right? Whereas UPS has been absolutely destroying in part because it has a very stable workforce, at least on the delivery end, right? Even though they're paying far more 
uh, in terms of, of uh, money to their drivers. It's, uh, it, it's great to be a UPS driver. Yeah, I um, now I know why I prefer UPS to FedEx. I hate FedEx out here in New York. They're just terrible. They never do anything right. They never, um, they don't really seem to know what they're doing at all. And UPS is super great. So I'm always like, please send me something UPS. So I guess there's a direct relationship between making money and getting your service and uh, having a unionized workforce there. Yeah, I mean, it turns out uh, that uh, workers that are well rested, that feel safe at work, that mm -hmm. have a, a say in their their workplace and how it is governed, um, wind up doing a better job. Right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, that's good. The other one, the other big one we hear about in New York all the time is teacher unions. And that's the one that's most direct to us. But um, we can kind of go in any direction you want. I was just kind of thinking about reasons people might be nervous about joining a union and what they might say. Um, that would be kind of rather silly arguments or maybe arguments based on something that's not sound in the reasoning. Mm. Um, so one of the ones I often say myself is I'm like, man, I bet I could do a better job negotiating uh, then because the, the union tends to float a lot of unseaworthy ships. There's a lot of, especially faculty unions where there's a lot of people who just aren't, they're way past their prime. They're mailing it in. I mean, now I'm one of these people. So I'm like happy to, not make this argument anymore. But when I was younger, I was like, man, if I could just kind of go in and negotiate on my own, I could probably make a lot more money because I'm doing a lot more than is expected. I wonder what, what's the response to that claim? Um, there are a couple. The first is that uh, you're not in an advantageous position when it comes to uh, larger institutional knowledge. Uh, for the union as a whole, we can actually request things like a pretty granular data on uh, compensation. We have access to uh, comparative databases uh, across the country, although the most important uh, question is the region and your tier within the region, mm -hmm, right? So mm -hmm, we can do those mm -hmm. kinds of comparisons and determine like whether or not you're really not getting paid. Because uh, unfortunately, on the labor side, at least in our experience, uh, when people feel that they are being undercompensated, uh, oftentimes when we look at it comparatively in the region, we find out that's not the case, right? We yeah. expected to find things like uh, that you that, uh, URI faculty were being substantially underpaid. Uh, when we did the comparative work, we found that there were a couple of departments where that was true right, where you could make a case that um, they're comparables in other uh, universities of a similar um, profile were, uh, were higher, um, but it was really specific. And individuals don't really have that kind of access to information. Um, secondly, uh, the, if, you, if you believe that you are uh, an excellent individual negotiator, you can still do that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the CBA is a, a floor, not a ceiling. So um, it, if it is the case that you do think you, you have a really good case, we say go for it. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's fine. Um, make sure that if you are recontracted, you send that contract to us so that we know um, what you're actually contracted yeah. to do if you have any problems going into the future. Um, but yeah, that's fine. Um, so between uh, one, it's harder than you think it is. Uh, and 
that the reason that, oh, I should also add to this, the reason that we are able to extract um, larger salaries is due to um, the, the power of collective action, right? There is a presumption that the university as a whole, its faculty could withhold its labor. One person withholding their labor just means a, a person who's going to get fired. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the only thing you really have to you really have is to say, well, we're not going to work collectively until this gets addressed. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty good. Um, let's see what else might be good. What are some responses you've heard that you think are funny? Oh, um, so we have, I think that there are a lot of versions. Uh, you get it a lot in teaching in general, but in different workplaces, I think that different people have like really specific individuals in mind when they say that unions protect bad apples. Oh yeah, right? yeah. I like this argument quite a bit. Yeah, that, that we are just here to ensure that the like the worst people at your institution are allowed to continue being lousy. Mm -hmm. um, now, our answer is your employer has every ability to fire for just cause. Right. All of our at least if, if they're good contracts, all of our contracts uh, don't say that you can't fire someone. They say very specifically, you have to fire for cause. Um, and uh, that that is important. That's an important uh, protection. But that protection is not um, ultimate, right? Mm -hmm. If you mm -hmm. have clear violations of your side of the, um, the responsibilities as laid out in the collective bargaining agreement, if there are violations there, if they have gone through the process the appropriate way, um, you, you can absolutely get fired. You can get fired with tenure, right? It can happen. Yeah. For sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, what the university is there, or what the union rather is there to do is not to protect the uh, individual, but to protect the contract. Right. Yeah. If there is a contractual violation, that is a violation to the collective bargaining agreement as a whole. And we are concerned with that. The individual less so. I mean, um, we have uh, I, I have participated in uh, grievance uh, cases where, you know, did I think that the person I was defending uh, did the greatest thing in the world? No, I don't. Um, but. I understand what the employer's responsibility is in terms of the way that they engage with this person. And if their engagement, I think, are, is out of bounds, um, that's important to be uh, to be defended, right? The, the bargaining agreement in and of itself and all of those specific rights for faculty members. Uh, and of course, those rights are always tested by the worst people, right? How do you get yeah, of course, yeah. a test of those things? Them by um, people who test the boundaries. Yeah, uh, that's exactly way. right. Yeah, right. And then that, yeah, that makes it hard to defend. It's it, you know, this is reminding me of maybe it's the same, the same kind of resources or the same difficulty we have in defending uh, the United States justice system in the court of popular opinion when people are like, look at this horrible person getting off. And we also saw that in the midterm elections. You know, at least we did here in New York with like, oh, liberal prosecutors are turning New York into a crime wasteland because they're too light on, but uh, the defense of like, well, if you were to get in trouble, you would want all of those rights at 100% of what you're due. And yeah. so, yeah, it's a hard thing to defend because most people say, well, I wouldn't get in trouble. I'm good. I'm good at my job. And people don't take into account how 
bad people are at communicating and how bad people are at judging evidence and how easily people can raise charges against somebody uh, in, a, in a workplace. Absolutely. Uh, and, and there seems to be something um, sort of especially backbitey about academia. Now, one thing I will say is that um, our union, and, and I believe this is inherent to organized labor, though I could be wrong, um, only uh, can grieve issues between um, administration and rank and file members. It cannot deal with member to member violence. And member to member violence is the most common in academia. This is actually not common in other unions, right? If, if we were construction workers, you would just take it outside, deal with yeah. it. <laughs> you fight, fight after the bar or something. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. not the union's problem. Um, but in academia, um, academics are really good at making uh, personal beef into uh, a real workplace issue. Uh, yeah, we had some good training people. in that. I think you and I had some good training <laughs> in that. Um, so I think that, that also does speak to another thing that that come up that when I'm talking to um, particularly holdouts, and that is um, anger about the limits uh, on what we can address and how we can mm, do it. Mm -hmm. So you get yeah. a lot of, well, I went to the union uh, in 1998, and uh, the you know executive director there said there was nothing that we could do, and you know there are a lot of reasons why that might be the case, right? Yeah. It could be that the administration's jerking you around, but right. the way they're jerking you around is allowed, right? Or at least the the bargaining agreement is silent on what they're doing, mm -hmm. um, or it's a situation where. Um, technically, uh, it's your chair that is making decisions that hurt you, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we can't really grieve that. Um, yeah, right, because that's another faculty member, right? A chair right. is not an administrator, technically. Yeah, or here's the process, and we can't really control um, why the process is the way that it is, because this is what current uh, labor law dictates is acceptable. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so our faculty always complain about parking, right? Just like students, yeah, right. faculty complain about It's not about a union parking. issue, yeah. Um, yeah, and we don't want to make it bargainable uh, because if we do, the in the state of Rhode Island, the uh, precedent's really bad. Like essentially, so long as the employer offers you a shuttle in some way, they can like basically park you anywhere away from where you work. Oh, wow. Um, that's and, so, that's, and that's terrifying. Fine. Yeah, yeah uh, I mean, that's a precedent that was set by another um, state employers, uh, employees union who got mad about their parking situation changing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we know, right, that in the, the field of argumentation, if we were to bring it before the court, right, we know what the precedent is and the way the court will interpret these things. So yes. it's not worth it to us <laughs> to yeah. have a losing battle. Because all these things have a price tag. You file in a court. Everything, all these things have a price tag. Which maybe speaks to the next thing we hear a lot about, dues. Yeah. Our dues aren't bad. I think faculty association is 50 bucks. AAUP, I don't, I don't pay them. Maybe I should pay them too. Because what was called our faculty association is not our AAUP. And I went to one of their meetings and I didn't like anything they were saying. I thought it didn't have any relevance to me, what they were concerned about. It was like stuff I didn't think was like, real but maybe they were having experiences that i'm not having 
Uh, and so I was like, well, I don't know if my objectives are aligned with this union. Maybe I should go to the AAUP union, but yeah, why are dues so high? And, and, uh, and, um, if you're not giving us good parking or making sure I have a better office or my, uh, computer is updated every three years, then what's the point? Yeah. Uh, so it is. <laughs> These are like some generic complaints. I don't know if you hear this stuff or not, but. Oh no. Yeah. We no, need I'll, a new I'll printer. Try. The union needs to get us a new printer. I was like, first of all, why are you printing? Yeah. Um, like, no. So we we get a lot uh, of questions about about dues, um, and the easiest answer to give you can only give if your union is successful, which yeah. is your raise is larger than the amount that we're asking for. Right. There you go. So yeah. Nice. That's we good. have given you more money uh, for sure in a uh, objective and countable way than mm -hmm. we would ever ask of you. Yeah. Right. Um, and from there, like, I think walking through all of the things that you pay for, um, is worth doing, right? So at the University of Rhode Island, we are lucky enough to have an executive director. So we actually have a professional, uh, union organizer and, uh, leader to be able to do the day-to-day -day running as well as an administrative staff member. So That's most cool. of our money, right, goes to them. At the end of the day, right, uh, we have to pay a nominal fee to uh, rent space from the university. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a financial advisor on uh, on staff in part because we have a large strike fund that you want to be growing every single year. Uh, you are only as dangerous as your strike fund is large to be able to support people not working. So that yeah, becomes right. important. Um, and then you have, uh, oh, your lawyer on retainer. Uh, you have at least one mm. labor lawyer to look at contracts, answer questions. Uh, you may have to have more than one if you're going into uh, arbitration or you're having other sort of active court cases with either individuals or the union as a whole. Um, and then you have um, organization, right? You need to be getting those members. You need to be having, uh, you know, end of the year banquets and things yeah, like right. that. Yeah. Um, and to be able to uh, provide money for additional union organizing beyond yourself, because there is um, the larger world of uh, labor organizing and unionization that you want to be able to build. And then finally, you have your umbrella national organizations. Now, I, I got to say that AAUP is not my favorite in the world in terms of uh, a lot of its national leadership. I think some of the individuals are cool people. Um, I think that uh, there is an argument often made. Some say some would the, say some would say i'm not we can we can take lesson rhetorical lesson from a former president and say people are saying i'm not saying it but people no. are saying it that uh <laughs> the american association of university professors regards itself more as a professional organization than yeah i was about to bring that up actually yeah i was about to bring that up actually is it like it sounds like the strategy is to make people feel that they are participating in a professional organization that has the benefits of community and talking to other professionals and kind of leaving like, like a, like a club, like you pay them a, like, so here in New York, we have every university club downtown, like in Midtown, the Cornell club, the Harvard club, the Yale club, the Princeton club, you know, you pay a lot of money, but for what? Well, for an identity of being part of this community where you can talk about issues that you know, you'll have in common with these people. That sounds like a very persuasive way to justify union dues when there's not the material advantage of making your job easier, which is the way people read a union. Mm -hmm. It's like, it should be making my job easier on a material level every day. Not really.
but this is a nice way of doing it, what you're doing there. But, and, the, but now you say the AAUP is more of a professional organization. So maybe there's some tension there. Maybe I'm like, cause I was like, oh, this is a good rhetorical strategy. It's like, let's identify with this rather than identifying with like striking and uh, we're going to get you more money and all these things that oftentimes a union can't do, mm-hmm. but is still doing a good job, but it's not materially quantifiable. Yeah, I think a good example of that um, or how certain unions and some were more successful than this and others dealt with COVID, right? Yeah, that's a great example. There's not a lot that you can do once the the semester gets started, right? There are there are fights over the summer once the the, uh, policies get set. Now we got to go. And um, so many people said that simply getting an email every once in a while from the executive director saying, hey, we know you're there. We know that you're having these struggles. We recognize these things. Take some time for yourself. Don't mm-hmm. like demand yeah. that you you do too much. Uh, understand that you, you're doing the best you possibly can. Be kind to one another, right? Right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And that other unions used it for for social uh, for socializing, right? They would have little happy hours with drink uh, uh, instructions and things like yeah. that. Yeah, virtual um, drinking, virtual drinking time. Yeah, uh, and and some were even able to use those for like active uh, organizing. I know that um, graduate students and part timers at Rutgers were using these kinds of of convivial associational. Uh, sorts of meetings Mm -hmm. to build that esprit de corps, um, which is necessary to do things like get people to stop uh, fighting with each other, right? Uh, Right, yeah, for sure. And be on the same page. Why do we do that so much? It's so weird that we do that so much. Uh, I have a, a pet theory that academics are trained to do that. Right. The, yeah. it, there are a series of rituals that you undergo that uh, whose main aim is cruelty. Uh, yeah. And that that is just built in at several stages to your career. They're the marker of your ascension. Uh, and they become yeah. the way that we think about treating each other. Yeah, it's definitely like a ritual. It's like it's more like a fraternity or sorority, like a nasty. One right. Right. It's hazing, than anything right? else. We go through uh, hazing every couple yeah. of years, right? First, it's for your uh, dissertation. Then it's for, you've got little baby ones before, then your copses and things like yeah. that. And then it's tenure. Uh, then yeah, you're always at war. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, promotion, right? Yeah. And then they draw on your face with a Sharpie when you fall asleep on the couch at the, at the mixer. No, not really. That's more traditional fraternity. But uh, this makes me... This helps me explain this conversation. It's helped me explain something that I never made never made much sense to me, which is why uh, teachers, particularly high school teachers, junior high teachers, elementary school teachers in New York and New Jersey, flock to the union and praise the union all the time. Academics are suspicious, highly, a lot more suspicious of unions than teachers are. And I think part of that is part of that ritual of like, well, I'm so much better than you. And how angry, if you want to start a fight with a professor, call him a teacher. Because they see that as a demotion. They see that as a, but maybe there's some value in seeing yourself as a laborer. Because I think teachers say we work very hard. We're laborers. And we are also working to, uh, for the public. We're working as a public good. We're improving society. And professors don't necessarily say that. 
or when they do say that, they think of themselves as, as demoting their position. I'm a professor, not a teacher. You hear that a lot. It's a good way to start a fight with a professor if you ever want to do that, by the way. Yeah, so this sort of anxiety was driving a, a major decision that the uh, AAUP made over the summer. So uh, the American Association of University Professors has had for the past several years a sort of loose affiliation agreement with the American Federation of Teachers, right? Uh, the lar I believe AFT is the largest teachers union in the country. I don't think NEA is bigger than it, them. Um, I will say they are uh, 5 million members strong, right? So we get that uh, affiliation, uh, uh, I guess, uh, proposal last year that really strengthens that relationship to the point where right we are officially aft members we all we now have an aft local oh, wow. uh, number oh. and everything um and there was a lot of anxiety about how that vote would go uh because of this fear that that college professors would see themselves as sort of better than uh, rank-and-file teachers. Now, I was for the affiliation precisely because I think that we need to see ourselves as teachers. We need to see ourselves as part of the larger education economy uh, and that uh, AFT are really strong organizers, right? They're here to be able to expand um, unionization in a way that like AAUP was not as much. Uh, you would not be surprised that the college professors union took a little while to warm up to graduate student organizing. Uh, a lot of people had to be uh, persuaded that that was a good idea. When yeah. obviously, like if you understand organized labor at all, uh, all organizing is good. Right. All yeah. uh, uh, unionization is good. And I think that AFT understands that. So it does turn out like the um, the vote was overwhelmingly in favor. And those against had like very specific reasons uh, why oh, okay. they were against that were um, particular to their institutions uh, mm -hmm. and their, their mm -hmm. kind of union structures in their states. Um, but for everybody else, uh, the the answer was yes. But even then. Right. When you ask the question, well, what does AFT get from this? Uh, the answer yeah. is a, a boutique brand. Yeah, right? that's right. Like, yeah. They, they get the fancy college professor. <clears throat> so we get like walked out on stage or uh, during the the uh, convention. Right. It's so funny because I just see it. That's a really funny advantage because I just see it as a huge benefit to AAUP and AFT kind of slumming. Yeah. I mean, that's how I see it. I don't know if that's accurate, but AFT doesn't really seem like they get a lot. But if that boutique brand of like, oh, well, we have university professors in our membership, if that does something for them, that's great. Yeah, I don't know I what mean, it does for them. But I've great. seen the, the, the difference in organizing is giant. So I was talking to someone who uh, had been through uh, some, some real ugly fights, and they said that uh, AAUP sent out one person to do like 10 days of media alone. Uh, and I think, no, they didn't even send them out. They just assigned them from the mothership, I think. Uh, and AFT sent uh, two organizers for two whole weeks to prepare for a strike. Right? Wow. Wow. 
Huh. So uh, AFT is ready and has the kind of infrastructure for striking yeah, because that's how, I mean, that is how teachers unions consistently um, uh, prove their worth, right? Yeah, if they just mention it, it's on, it's the headline on the news in that, in that city. Yeah. It's such a huge, big, huge problem if that occurs for everyone gets involved. So what am I going to do with my kids? Mm -hmm. I got to go to work, you know, because we don't have a. You know, it's like uh, taking the gaps of society, um, uh, making adva taking advantage of those, I think, in a good way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what an interesting affiliation. That's so fan that's so wild. But what a great advantage to A. Maybe I will join AAUP now I'm talking to you, even though they might be uh, more of a professional organization. But the AFT thing seems really good. I will say the fact that Maybe they're not reaching out for you for active membership is concerning to me. <laughs> Well, that's because uh, of just where I work and the weirdness mm. of it. Um, I wonder if I can find this while we're talking about the history of unionization at St. John's, where I work, it made Time Magazine. Mm. It was a national story about what was going on because it was mostly the church, the priests fighting the academics, and that was the birth of our union. So let me see if I can find that. But um, in the meantime, while I'm practicing my Google Foo, I think there's... Um, this, uh, what are some of the good rhetorical strategies for defending the existence of rights you would never use? Mm. Now, this is a much broader argumentative challenge, but this is the kind of thing that I have a lot of trouble with students. Like, let's take the example, great example, Fourth Amendment. Why, if you're not doing anything wrong, why should you not let the cop look in your car if they pull you over? They're like, man, if I take a look in your back seat, I'd be like, yes, I do. Because you don't have a warrant. Now, am I just causing trouble? What is that? See, and this is the kind of scenario that, that really uh, identifies very closely with union kind of arguments, right? Which is like, well, if I work hard and I, and I do good and I'm appreciated by my bosses, why do I need a union? Mm -hmm. uh, because I can just handle this on my own and I don't want to cause trouble. Why would, so the, why would I want rights that I'm not going to use is a tough argument to get people to buy. And even more so with young people, even though Gen Z is supposed to be very political, they're all just kind of like, no big deal. So um, I don't know. I don't know if you've faced that kind of opposition before. Oh, yeah. But then also, another fun thing to talk about is this idea that we don't have in the United States of striking in solidarity that they do in France or in Canada and in South America big time, like student strikes. Unheard of here. We don't really have student strikes. We kind of had a student strike with Black Lives Matter that I can talk about in a minute. But those are two things you can kind of chat about and play with while I look for the history of St. John's unionization. Yeah, so I think that a, a version of that argument that you wind up seeing, uh, particularly for academic unions, is why do I need a union when we have self-governance, right? We're, but we already, through our you know, faculty organization or Senate or whatever, we make you know, communal decisions already. Why do we need uh, a union, right? Um, especially if you can't imagine a world in which you would need to grieve someone or whatever. Say you've got an amazing uh, work situation. Um, I think that in those circumstances, pointing to the unknowability of uh, whether or not we will need something like that uh, is important, right? You you think that you've got 
a really good relationship with your institution until one day they find a $20 million hole in their budget. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. You know, I bet people at the University of Akron for years thought that they had, um, you know, a, a nice place to work at uh, and that they were safe. And uh, I'm sure people in the state of Georgia believed that they would have tenure. <laughs> right. Um, and these things uh, have changed really, really quickly. Um, and we would also point out that so many of these grievance issues and other things that we see um, are good people who got completely blindsided by bad administrators. Um, so uh, we successfully argued for a tenure clock extension recently for a member who uh, had been denied a tenure in promotion to associate professor. Um, and it was in part because uh, not even the uh, the administrator had done anything wrong, but the administrator was constantly pointing out in reviews, hey, this person is not publishing enough. And the chair of the department kept saying, hey, don't worry, kid, keep uh, creating these graduate programs that we don't want to have to do. It'll be fine. Um, and it wasn't fine. Right. So this yeah. person is getting constant feedback that what they're doing is fine right? That they're doing a great job. Uh, and it turns out they're not, right? That somebody along the line is misrepresenting things to them. So uh, yeah, I, I just think that the emphasis of that, the lack of control that we have over a lot of things, right? Uh, we have regular cases of students making ridiculous accusations of professors and ensuring that that stuff doesn't show up in people's record or get brought up or, uh, you know, uh, get acted on inappropriately. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. You need one student having one bad day, right? Yeah, and then yeah. all of a sudden that right you didn't think you needed to have defended, you do. Yeah, or, or just a student who's just um, angry or upset by something. And it's not anything that the professor has any control over or the university. And they just show like lash out to it. It's like I was talking to a colleague the other day about um, accusations that, you know, you're not doing your job. So we had a big row here in a department where somebody was like uh, over assessment, which is a great way to throw each other under the bus like we were talking about earlier. And it was like, well, they're not doing well on the exit assessment in the senior level courses because you're not doing your job in the basic courses. And this started a huge fight. It almost got to a take it outside kind of fight in this department, like physical. Now, the union can't think about that, but um, this kind of stuff is easy to to say, um, well, to a student can say, well, my professor didn't ever teach me that. Mm -hmm. Or my professor just didn't like me. They were racist or they say racist stuff or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So, um, but anyway, solidarity strikes, we can talk about that too. That's kind of fun. We had yeah. the black lives matter action here. We had an organization called students of consciousness and they, they occupied the cafeteria because, um, our security staff wouldn't do anything about a girl who's constantly being airdropped, you know, airdropping on the phone. Mm -hmm. She, uh, black, black woman in class being airdropped images of gorillas over and over and over again, over again. Uh, by a group of, I think it was four or five white girls who were doing this to her. 
She complained, complained. Finally, nothing was done about it. So the students consciousness occupied the cafeteria and wouldn't let anybody in or out. And so this is kind of a strike action. It's kind of cool. But then the university resolved it by saying, well, let's go and talk uh, in the theater about this. So I found, I found something about our union here at St. John's. This is kind of fun history. This is a, oddly, this is a Boston newspaper. Um, St. John's teacher striking rover over um, faculty firing. St. John's University in New York this week became the first college in American history faced with a formal strike by its members of its own faculty, 1966. Mm. So kind of interesting, huh? And it's wild that it takes until 1966 for there to be uh -huh. uh, like the first faculty strike in the country. Yeah, it's kind of wild. So what they did was they just fired, uh, in December, they fired 31. Uh, this was before we had faculty governance, like it was run by the priests. So you didn't have faculty governance. So um, there you go. It's a complicated thing. But there's also another website I found that had some interesting strike pictures, mm. which I'll see if I can find that again, because that was really kind of interesting. And this is like a strange website that has this weird map. I don't know why the map is there. But some cool pictures. There we go. That's a little bit better. Somebody addressing the crowd on the back of the car. My children will never attend St. John. Now, all of this is built up now, but this building is still there. Mm. That's where my office is, actually. St. John Hall. Now, here's one. United Federation of College Teachers, Local Union 3, AFL-CIO. Nice. This, this is uh, solidarity striking, right? This is the together. other, uh, that does remind me, one of the other things that was good about the AFT uh, affiliation is that while the Rhode Island State Labor Board had always kind of informally included us, now mm -hmm. that we're AFT, it means we're AFL-CIO, so we are now official members. Oh, great. Very good. Academic freedom. They just wanted to be able to teach things that were not, you know, the catechism. Mm -hmm. This building is still there. This building is still there. St. Al's uh, and uh, St. Augustine Hall, a library now, but it used to be academic building. Pretty interesting. Here's some good old photos. <laughs> be a father, not a bother. Boy, that's good advice even today. <laughs> so good it took a long time i wonder what it would take to get people to say like um oh yeah i have so much i guess in this country we don't really have that narrative but it's like i have so much in common with an amazon warehouse worker i think i'm gonna go on strike in solidarity with with those workers or starbucks you know starbucks mm -hmm. is the other big unionization story and howard schultz nice guy you know self-proclaimed nice guy and Starbucks is like one of the best places to work. They give you time off, they give you vacation, all that, even though you're an hourly employee, you know? So what is it gonna take to persuade people to go on strike in solidarity with other people, like with other workers? I mean, people don't like to think of themselves as workers in this country. I mean, I think that um, that kind of recognition of the the connectedness of different struggles so you do see some levels 
of solidarity striking um, or at least refusals to cross picket lines uh, and things like that by uh, the folks we were just talking about earlier, the Teamsters are super oh, yeah. good at this, right? So um, uh -huh. they will be able to amplify the power of strikes by refusing to do things like deliver. So uh, they did this when NYU uh, was facing its graduate student strikes. Uh, Teamsters mm -hmm. refused to deliver anything to the university. Um, they also uh, refused deliveries uh, when, oh, who was it? Is it Nabisco workers? No, Keebler workers. They were uh, making baked goods anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Keebler, the Keebler well. elves. Keebler <laughs> elves on strike. Yeah, that's cool. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if we can bring that any further out. Yeah. Um you didn't help start the union there, did you? Oh no. Uh our union is 50 years old. Uh Right. Yeah, ours is pretty old too. I wonder about like getting involved and how you cuz like one of the things that interests me is how do you turn the direction of such a big boat? Like ours is from the mm -hmm. 60s and has deep academic freedom concerns, but now academic freedom is more of a dog whistle for the right than anything else. Yeah. Uh, um, it's not really a labor issue. In the images that we just looked at, it's definitely a labor issue, uh, which I think um, is kind of a cool way to think about it. It's like we're not able to teach our field the way we are because the, the priests get in the way. The priests are telling us what to teach and that we're having to be irresponsible to our own field. We're not able to have that academic freedom. Now it's like, I want to be able to say the N-word in class, which I went to a union meeting that was about that they were like we should have that right i mean that's make any sense old white people you know but um i think that um uh trying to steer it more towards helping the students where they are and who they are is a difficult thing to steer so it is almost like organizing in a way mm -hmm. to try to get the union onto a new track or to try to get it onto a new course very difficult but i wonder if it's, it's very similar to sort of the kind of arguments you'd make in original organizing yeah, I mean, if you look at where uh, teachers have been successful, it is in areas of mutual benefit to uh, teachers and students, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, articulating their demands in the context of things like the learning environment, uh, which to me, I think is a deeply underutilized uh, tactic at the collegiate level. And I wonder if it's not in part because of a kind of widespread uh, contempt or antipathy towards one's students, right? Instead of yeah. thinking about how do your work conditions and their learning conditions um, engage with one another? Where are the overlapping issues where if you had better working conditions, they would have a better educational experience, like smaller classes, like lower workloads, like um, uh, more control over your schedule, that these things can really change for the better for students. And one of the places who, where they're really doing that successfully is at Rutgers University. Um, mm. Their folks mm. have done a great job at making the connection between student concerns and faculty concerns, particularly when you look at somebody like a, um, a per course teacher. Uh, they had an action uh, last year where uh, they had a whole week where if you were an adjunct, 
you found a way to talk for a little bit in your classroom about your experience, about your conditions, about how that affects the way that you teach the class uh, as a way of being able to build that solidarity between um, teachers and students. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Really, really good idea. I, yeah, students are kind of left out of that whole conversation or students are seen as like, well, I deal with them too. Mm-hmm. They're like the problem or the raw material or something. It's like, well, I should be rewarded for the hard work I already do with these with these horrible raw materials mm-hmm. that I'm given. And I do a great job, so I should be paid for that. Uh, and that's kind of the way it's done. But I, I wonder if... I wonder how you make the argument to professors like, well, you would be able to do a better job if you had better control over your working conditions. But they say, well, I'm already doing a great job. I'm super smart. I'm a professor. I have a PhD and all these kind of things that like bad professors say, like I'm already doing the best, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm already amazing. Uh, I'm already teaching the class to the best. But when you look at what they're doing, it really is a lot of like um, stuff that fits the form. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, this is the time we have, and this is the time of day it is, so I have to do these kind of things. It's almost like that um, uh, concession. Well, students won't read, so I'm not going to assign that much reading. Right. And then you create, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I wonder how you can encourage, again, it goes back, I guess, to how do you make professors feel that they are laborers and, right. and make them want to feel that way as a positive thing? It's a real tough rhetorical challenge in the end, I think. I think one of the the important things is to catch them when they're young. Yeah, right? when, yeah. Like, you know, before you're, you're tenured, that sense of precarity, I think, is way more obvious to you. Mm-hmm. Now, there's still going to be some of them who are poorly socialized. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, but um, I think early on in your, your career, that sense of um, a lack of control is much more palpable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good idea too. We recently did our last contract. We increased our adjunct pay significantly, mm. but it had been a long, long time since that happened, but they gave up other initiatives to do it. And uh, I think it got a lot of adjuncts interested in joining the union because it's like, oh, they'll do something for us. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like the, the problem of like, you know, well, where's my next material reward? Mm-hmm. Well, there's not going to be another one for a long time. Uh, it's probably what it's going to be. So, um, uh, I just wonder about that kind of, I guess getting them while they're young is good. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm surprised they didn't hear your dogs. I know. Them. Well, it turns out um, the work being done on the house was going to be done tomorrow. Instead. Oh, look so at that. Okay. They have gotten to sit in the sun. Uh, but I do have to... <laughs> Sadly, go to campus on my day off because oh wow we, yeah we have some students dealing with group members that are not helping and so I've just got to get them done with an assignment and figure that out from there. <laughs> okay, all right, well great. Well, Dr. Kate Morrison, University of Rhode Island, thank you so much for being on in the bin again. Video in the bin. I am so excited to to be back, and yeah. I hope that you and all the listeners have a great day. We will. Thanks so much for uh, talking with us. Appreciate it. And we'll see you again soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Imagine having to go to campus on a day when you're not teaching. Terrible. That was pretty interesting. I thought that was kind of an interesting 
way to think through some of those union issues. Um, always great to have Kate on. And I think I'm going to take a little break. And we will be back momentarily. Just take a little, a little break. And... Um, And then we'll be back and talk some more about rhetoric and debate and stuff like that. Um, we'll return after a short break. There we go. Does that look good? Yeah, I think that looks good. Okay, great. We will return momentarily.
Okay, we're back. Hope you didn't miss us uh, too much. I'll be going for a little while here. Not a lot of activity in the in the chat today. I don't know. Maybe this is a bad time. I wonder when it was I originally, when I originally did the stream, I felt like, oh, this is really going to take off. Because there, so, uh, there was so much attention, so many people in the stream, but not so much today. Or the last couple of streams been a little light. So maybe I got to figure out what time of day is the best time to to do uh, streaming. But yeah, it was pretty interesting talking to Kate about union stuff. She is a very, very smart person. Uh, last stream, we talked about public forum debate. Uh, and, uh, public forum is the most popular form of debate in the United States. I don't know what's wrong with my microphone here. It might be the gods telling me it's time to end the stream. Uh, I don't understand why public forum debate is so popular. I don't get it. I have a dark suspicion as to why it might be um, popular. This is kind of weird. A public forum debate is a kind of debate where the topic changes pretty regularly, maybe every three months or so. Um, but I just don't think that it is really all it's cracked up to me. Let's look a little bit at this defense here. This is from a book I just found. I clicked on the National Speech and Debate Association website and they had this free book, Introduction to Public Forum and Congressional Debate. Now, Student Congress, I think, is a good activity because it involves sustained research. So it's weird to me that you would that you would associate congressional debate with public forum debate, which I think public forum debate does not have sustained research, really, with it. Um, public forum came out, the history of public forum debate is it comes out of a short form, a short prep forum debate because the struggle, the history of the National Speech and Debate Association in debate is a, is a history of trying to make sponsors happy. So you look to, it used to be in Ripon, Wisconsin. I don't know where it is today. Well, I have their website up here right now. I probably should be able to tell. <laughs> They are located, I guess they might still be there. I don't know where they are these days. I want to say Minnesota. I don't know where they are. Where's 920 zip code? Where is that? Anyway, they always have had... Um, let's see. Frequently asked questions. Where are you? In what of these United States do you call your home? Well, it looks like they have a lot of um, a lot of good um, Here's the history of it. Yeah, right on Wisconsin. Da -da 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 -da. They have an online tournament in um, COVID, which I, I also find is weird. 
Like, why wouldn't you change the event to to meet the, the situation? Uh, one of the biggest principles of rhetoric is you got to change the event. You got to change to meet the context, to meet the situation. Why wouldn't they do that? Also, another weird thing I think about. Um, a super weird thing about debate, contemporary debate competition is how little they want to change the tournament. They will not not do a tournament. We have to do a tournament. We have to do a tournament. Yeah, this is actually pretty interesting history. I wonder if they have an archive. That'd be a pretty good archive to go look at say some of the big fights here because this is also you know the fallacy of growth right the bigness fallacy which is uh a douglas Inninger's complaint or douglas Inninger's uh big concern about debate was well if you have a big tournament you're being successful he called it the fallacy of bigness oh bruno jacob died in 1980 i didn't James Copeland was pre was president of NFL for a long time. He was a hardcore dude. He also had like an incredible memory. The weirdest thing about um, uh, about him, I I think, was um, he he almost had like a photographic memory. Like he knew who people were and what school they were from. Like he would be like, oh, like he greeted me. He was like, oh, it's good that AM Consolidated now has a national champion. I was like, I didn't even tell him where I was from. He just kind of knew. He knew everybody and where they were from. And he kept track of those of those schools that were, I mean, he probably didn't know every single school, but I bet he did know almost every single school that participated in national speech and debate. I bet he did. Yep, Candy King, she's there for a long time. Interesting, interesting. Ted Belch for a long time. Yeah, and then Ted uh, and then Ted Turner, who had been a sponsor. So what this what this shows it is sort of being a neutral, kind of moving through a variety of different leadership uh, people, different teachers enough. But the concern has always been a struggle at the National Forensic League um, level between what uh, coaches want to do competitively and what sponsors will accept and tolerate as debate. So it's an ongoing, long term battle between the two of them as to what counts what will count as debating and what um what will not count as debating so what you find is you find uh, a number of people trying to engineer debate to be more technical more interesting and then when you take it in front of sponsors who are paying for the large expenses like membership fees and registration fees don't cover the cost of having a giant national tournament you have to make it palatable to those people so i think that um yeah, this is weird how incredibly how incredibly detailed the modern stuff is it's so strange here's who got elected to the board it's, it's kind of weird they're doing every single year that's why okay but what they don't show here is that, you know, Ted Turner was like, I want to I want to sponsor a forum debate. We'll call the Ted Turner debates. And the model for the Ted Turner debates is pretty similar to what public forum is today. Uh, this model of, um, you know, what this document is talking about here. 
um, the model of public forum is one of like 2v2, not reading a lot of detailed evidence where the topic changes every couple of months. And um, the research is not that hardcore. Ted Turner didn't really want there to be much research. His idea was, well, every single debate will be about nuclear um, weapons, nuclear disarmament, and the national organization. And a lot of uh, teachers probably thought, well, this is going to be boring for students. They don't want to debate the same thing all the time. It's going to be kind of boring. So they um, punted the Ted Turner sponsorship, and they just call it Public Forum now, and it's really taken off. And I'm afraid that it um, is popular because it's entertaining to students rather than engaging uh, with students. And um, I always thought debate was a fun way to test what you need to know or what you could learn about a topic. I always thought that was one of the big advantages of it in high school. I think at the university level, it's still educational, but I think you can get away with things like British parliamentary debate or world-style debate where the topic's changing very frequently because this is a good way of sort of testing what you know and what you're getting through your curriculum. And so I, for me, that was kind of my defense of it was like, well, actually this plugs into the curriculum in all these different ways. As a high school debate teacher, my feeling was that a policy debate or CX debate, as we call it in Texas, was far, far, far superior to other forms of debating, primarily because uh, it made the students go deep on one particular topic for a year and it showed them the value of research of writing, of organization, all these things. But, um, yeah, public forum, uh, yeah, congressional debate does the same thing. Congressional debate is like, well, I have to sponsor a bill to participate in student congress, so I need to research a bill and come up with uh, an idea for what bill I could do. And that keeps you in the stacks researching for quite a while. Um, and I think that um, the... Um, Lack of that is a problem in, in public forum because it, it, I think it tends to encourage people to teach tricks or to do drills or things like that that didn't make a lot of sense. I, I always thought it was funny that when we first started to do British parliamentary debate or world's debate, when we first started to do that in the Northeast in 2007, um, all the old things I used to do no longer applied. So I was not able to do any of those things uh, to teach debaters. We weren't able to do drills. There wasn't, didn't make any sense. The only thing to get better at debate was to have debates uh, or to have conversations about research, but even that didn't really work too well, I didn't think. And public forum seems to um, be about tricks, which uh, makes me a little bit, uh, you know, nervous about it. I have seen it. It seems like it's all of the bad elements of policy debate without any of the good parts, like checking back what you're saying by having to have detailed evidence in there. It was enabled debaters to discuss current events in an accessible conversational format. No, that no longer happens. If you go and watch a public forum debate, it's very, very quick and very technical. Too technical for an accessible conversational format. Public forum rounds feature polished delivery, exciting clash, and fast-paced refutations. The fast-paced refutations part, absolutely. Um, I mean, maybe it's good to cut your teeth on it, but I feel like today's students want something challenging. Why would they? Why would they pick this? I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, these are both very good topics, right? 
I would do these topics in a college debate class. But these also require a lot of research in order to have a substantive debate about it. So I don't know if you can do... I don't know if you can really do it in um, such a quick... Quick four-minute speeches. I don't know. I don't understand why you can just do policy debate and do it with four-minute speeches and teach it that way. I, don't know, I just don't understand it. Maybe we could watch some of one and and see. Oh, look, I'm live right now. So here's the national finals. Good look at that. Why is it so low? It's so low. Wonder why. This isn't that bad, really. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I just don't understand why you guys can't hear it very well. Maybe I have to adjust the volume on this thing. I don't know. I'm still learning this software, so... You have to, you have to give me a break, you know? I wonder if you can even hear it. I don't think you guys can hear it. It's not so bad, really. I got to figure out how to um, how to add the video in here. How to show a video. Well, if you can't hear it, there's no point in showing it to you. 
But um, I just didn't think. I don't think that's that bad. Um, but it is like a lot of data kind of be rapidly delivered across. I don't know. I don't know. I wonder if I should even teach this. You know, I'm teaching a debate class in the spring. Hopefully it'll make. I wonder if I should even use this format. I usually just use my own format. But it's also kind of nice to have a plug-and-play format. Um, it's nice to have a plug-and-play format where the students can participate in something that's also being done in other places. But why wouldn't I just teach them policy debate? Why not just do that as the frame? And then we can do international formats maybe at the end of the semester? I don't know. I don't know. It seems like maybe it would be better to do... I don't think I want to do this. But I think this is part of the representative problem, I think, with public forum debate, or part of the problems with for public forum debate, is that public forum debate... Um, let's see, is this pretty good? Yeah. So public forum debate is, um, I think, representative of a kind of attitude that debate does not generate its own knowledge, that debate has no epistemic value. That is, debate is the presentation and the packaging of good research that has occurred elsewhere, outside of the speeches, outside of the debate moment. And that, to me, is deeply concerning because debate, conceived from rhetorical theory, where, where it's born, the idea of debate and teaching debate comes out of communication departments, comes out of rhetorical training. And also, when you look to the top NCA scholars or the top scholars in speech communication rhetoric departments, the vast majority of them have a debate and college debate background. That would indicate that they're doing a lot more than just packaging research found elsewhere. So it really bugs me when we think about, when we see the most popular format in the debate is um, one where people are showing off that they've done research elsewhere and there's no development of their own sort of position. So this makes me very sympathetic to scholarship like, um, who was it who wrote? Several years ago, there was a nice piece, a nice interview um, where uh, there was a very nice uh, connection made between doing debate research and publication. So why not think about debate as the publication of research that you've done, your own research? Why not think about it uh, like that? Um, hmm, someone's asking me if it's okay if they put video game clips over their speech audio. Yes. Do a little live teaching there. That sounds great. Um, the, the kind of like, I think a lot of the popularity of something like public forum comes from fear. Fear that, that something uh, that, that would surprise or not have been thought of before would come out of a student speech. So students are evaluated traditionally based on can you replicate and repeat what we have studied in the class? Can you give it back to me? Which is called, you know, Paulo Freire calls this the banking model of education. And I think it's alive and well across the university, across high schools and all this. And it's really kind of quite a terrible thing. Um, but it is alive and well. And I think that um, things like public forum debate 
uh, encourage that kind of banking model, unfortunately. Because like, well, how good were your sources? How well did you question those sources? How well did you uh, engage in them? Uh, decide on the merits of the debate rather than personal biases about the topic. So again, we see, you know, um, in all those old 1916 articles, we see James O'Neill's um, ghost. People should be determined based on how well they did the debating. See, that indicates to me also the need to draw conclusions on the quality of the research and whether that research came from acceptable sources. So there's not a, like any kind of way of judging it on the advancement of thought among the people participating, which is a distinct advantage I think policy debate has um, o o over other forms of, uh, of doing it. I think that's a distinct advantage. In uh, WDC, you don't see that as much. In Worlds, you don't see that as much. Uh, but I still think that Worlds has encouraged, would encourage more conversation than this. I don't know. Congressional debate seems far, far, far superior. And that is really conversational. It's not this kind of weird clipped delivery. Because there's always this pressure to take advantage of the, um, the time limitations. So what would it look like if... Um, what would it look like if we had a debate competition that was based on the idea of the, the values that rhetoric holds uh, true? The value of invention of the Constitution and addressing of an audience and the ethics of audience um, addressing, uh, the cons Constitution of knowledge out of information. I think that's an important rhetorical move that we all need more practice in, which is people say, well, there's too much information and people don't know how to accept facts anymore. It's not, that's not the case at all. That's that people no longer believe in themselves and others to constitute facts out of a swirl of information. And that's something that I think everybody could practice quite a bit more. And debate's a wonderful way to practice that if it's done in ways that aren't a reflection of uh, what's out there already, which I think is kind of a strange, a strange notion. Take a look at this. We're looking here more at, um, let's see. Which tab am I going to show? I didn't know I could just show a tab. This is great. All right, great, perfect. Okay, that's even less distracting because you're not going to be looking at what tabs I have open. Look at this, just like what we were talking about last time. A complete argument contains the Toolman model, but also with the caveat that you need to say why the argument is important. But wouldn't this be the warrant? Wouldn't that be the warrant? What a strange... What a strange model. No, this doesn't make any sense at all. Legalizing marijuana will increase government revenues. Legalizing marijuana if sold in stores at the same price as sold on the street would yield this much in tax revenue. It would increase government revenues because it would be taxed is the warrant, not governments can place taxes on legalized marijuana. It would be taxed because uh, other things like marijuana have been taxed before, like sin taxes and stuff. Oh, this is weird. 
This is a very, very weird example of an argument, I'd say. How strange. So this is what's being taught is this, but notice how it's not based on uh, any kind of innovative way of addressing audience or how the audience would constitute these things, but it's based purely on what can be derived from, from facts. And it's also too basic of the Toolman model to really be useful. There's no backing, there's no qualifier, there's no rebuttal. Um, yeah, this is all just like tournament competitive kind of stuff, which is kind of sad. But I think any format of debate, not just public forum, will um, suffer from these things, from this kind of convenient naming and indexing that uh, comes from uh, your primary experience in debate is going to be in a tournament and not in something else. Like you can have all kinds of competition. A lot of times I get dinged, I get critiqued out there on the internet because they say, oh, he's against competition. Like, bro, if I was against competition, I probably wouldn't be researching and studying debate because debate is inherently competitive. Someone wants to, you want to win someone over. Not win a tournament round, win someone over or win ascent is another way of thinking about it. You don't have to have a tournament to practice winning ascent. Um, this is so strange, this book. A warrant is a reason that a claim is true. No, no, not at all. The warrant is whatever adhesive material makes that claim persuasive or makes the audience want to adhere to that claim. A claim without a warrant is merely an assertion is a statement of opinion without explanation or justification. Okay, dude. This is some of the worst argument theory I've ever seen in my life. The warrant is the adhesive material that comes from society that sticks your claim to your to your data. So when you say, usually the way argument goes is you do it in the, in the order of so you say what you believe and then you say why it's true based on the evidence and the warrant is never expressed. It's not a reason the claim is true. It's the adhesive material that makes the inertia is a good word for it, to borrow from Perlman and Ulbricht Stittica, this idea of argumentative inertia, the things that exist in society that push people towards a particular conclusion given a certain circumstance. Boy, that's embarrassingly bad. And this is the this is the National Speech and Debate Association's recommended textbook. The warrant should immediately follow the claim and should specify, explain, or justify it. That's just the claim. And, and the data, the data might be, um, as we know, blah, 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 blah. It's true because this language works with the audience. Okay, well, that's a good thing to see finally. Finally, something I can I can enjoy or get with. You don't have to provide the warrant. The warrants are provided by the interaction, by what we call the inertia, the scene and the set of cultural and social conditions that the audience finds itself in. Um, so this is also a claim here too. The person says this is a warrant. It will stimulate, the, the affirmative will stimulate economic growth. It will do this by putting more money into the hands of the investors who pass the money along to businesses and boost production. That's not a warrant, it's a claim. Now, where's the data? Tax cuts lead to an increase in investor confidence. And you would probably have some citation there, some evidence or an example of this happening. But the warrant is this idea of saying, well, why is it? Well, it's like, well, uh, because investors will take their money and historically we've seen that happen. And then the backing would be like, here's an example of investors pushing what they've gotten out of money back into the business sector and that keeps the economy afloat. What a strange, 
what strange things we're teaching to young people about how arguments should look. I mean, it needs to be messy. Like, you can't just teach it as the sanitized thing. I think that's what makes debate coaches, like emphasis on coaches, very nervous is when the um, the event is not sanitized, when it's like public and when it's... Um, a lot of debate coaches don't want what they're doing to be public at all. They don't want an administrator to see it. They just want uh, They just want other tournament people to see it because the weirdness of what the sanitized model of argument, because there's no audience. So there's no... Um, there's not really a lot of inertia to play with. It's all kind of like frozen in time or frozen in position there. And so they're j jockeying off of that. And it ends up being um, quite a stale and strange thing. Quite a stale and strange thing, I'd say. Each argument has four elements, a claim, a warrant, a data, and an impact. No. A claim serves as the title for an argument. Most people would call the claim the argument. I think in, in lay people... They would say, if you say, I think I think Joe Biden's doing a good job, that's the argument in the title. So, oh, he's trying to argue that Joe Biden's doing a good job. Well, what did he say? Well, he said that you know he's done these great things with infrastructure and he's passed this legislation and he's done blah, 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 blah. He's done all these different things. And impact is the reason the argument is important. I mean, I think that's just, I don't think you have to explain that if you have an audience. The audience is there to hear those arguments, so the importance would be kind of baked in. It would be part of the inertia of the argument, right? I don't know. I'm not a big fan of this book. Gross. Let's stop looking at it. I'm kind of tired of that anyway. Oh, we only have a few minutes left, but I might I might call it early. I'm getting kind of hungry. But um, thanks for coming to the stream today. We streamed for almost uh, two hours here. I was trying to go for a two-hour stream. Uh, we'll probably be back on Monday with another potpourri stream. That should be pretty good, I think. Um, but yeah, thinking about, you know, thinking about NCA next week, thinking about union arguments, thinking about a lot of stuff to think about from today's show. But I think one of the other things I'll say about NCA is kind of a closing thought about it is I wish it was much more of a practitioner's conference rather than one where people present theoretical papers. I've always tried to do undergraduate debates at NCA over the years, and NCA has never been interested in that. And I've also had uh, faculty uh, and, and scholars get upset that I brought undergraduates to the National Communication Association Conference. So I think that that's um, uh, kind of kind of weird. Um, I think that. Um, I think that we'll see what happens there. I'm going to film a lot there and I'll post those on YouTube. So um, you can check this podcast out and all the other ones too uh, on my YouTube channel. That's where I'll probably put the videos from it, youtube.com slash tviano. I have it on the screen here. That's where you'll see the videos from um, NCA. Uh, I think that um, I think that's going to do it for today's podcast. So thanks very much for tuning in and listening. As always, you can get this podcast episode and all the other ones at anchor.fm slash in the bin. Um, and uh, we will see you next time we stream, which will probably be Monday, I would think. So have a great weekend. Uh, stay out of the rain if you're in the path of the hurricane. And we'll see you next time.